So last week, Pastor Dan introduced us to a tradition that we're going to do during Advent that was not something I grew up with at all, but it's probably familiar to many of you. It's sort of this idea of passing the peace, which you oftentimes see in more liturgical churches. I, I had not grown up with that tradition at all, where someone up front says, you know, the peace of the Lord be with all of you, and then you respond. So we're going to practice that again. May the peace of the Lord be with you all. And also with you. Oh, well done. Dan was right. That does feel more peaceful. I mean, just a little bit more peaceful, at least. It's a way of us blessing one another uh, in a season where I think we could use more peace. The holidays are fully upon us now. Woohoo! Not everybody. <laughs> Not everybody was into that. For some, it is the most wonderful time of the year, right? And we listen to these songs. And if you ever look at the words, some of those kind of secular Christmas songs, they're just goofy. For instance, that one is, it's the most wonderful time of the year with kids jingle belling and everyone telling you be of good cheer. Does it ever work to tell someone to be of good cheer? It's the most wonderful time of the year. And for some people, it is. And for others, not so much. I think the holidays, for many of us, acts like something like of a magnifying glass, right? Magnifying the highs, but also magnifying the lows. They magnify the joy when we're happy, but they can also magnify the pain of our sorrow. They can magnify the loneliness, the absence of that family member who isn't with us this year. They can magnify the celebration of being with people we love, but also magnify the grief of the broken relationships and the shame, the feelings of inadequacy of being the black sheep of the family or the workplace or the community. For many of us, this really is the hap happiest season of all. But for others, the holidays and these holiday gatherings are just one more chance to feel like a failure. One more, more chance to, to, to prove that, that what divides us is stronger than what unites us. One more chance to feel like we're not enough. One more glimpse in how broken our relationships are, our reputations are. One more opportunity for us to experience shame. But fortunately, Scripture has a whole lot to say on this subject. In fact, the Christmas story, which we spend the next month in, right, has a lot that speaks directly to this idea of broken relationships and broken reputations and public shame. At the beginning of the Christmas story in Luke, we're introduced, of course, to this, this young virgin girl, who has a miraculous pregnancy. But before we even get there in the story, we're given another story. The story of the miraculous pregnancy of Mary's older relative, Elizabeth, who along with her husband, Zachariah, a priest, had endured the cultural shame of not being able to bear children. In that time and in that place, infertility was a sign of some secret sin, some secret hidden thing that, that, that was proven if you couldn't bear a child. It was a public disgrace. In fact, when she responds, when she finds out she is pregnant, she says these words. Soon afterwards, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and went into seclusion for five months. How kind the Lord is, she exclaimed. He has taken away my disgrace of having no children. It's interesting. Her first response is, oh joy, God has given me a child. Now I get to be a mom. No, it's God has given me a child and has taken away my disgrace. That's significant. I'm sure she was thrilled to bear a child, but that's not what Scripture reports. What Scripture reports is that she was thrilled to no longer bear the shame, the disgrace, the hidden suspicion, the public shame, the lack of peace. Then, at the very end of chapter 1 of Luke, before the angels and the shepherds and the wise men and the miraculous child is born, all those different things, 
their miraculous child is born, and he's named John. This is the same John who become John the Baptist, who prepare the way for the Lord. And Zechariah, his father, speaks these prophetic words over this newborn miraculous child. And you, my little son, will be called the prophet of the Most High, because you'll prepare the way for the Lord. You will tell people how to find salvation through forgiveness of their sins. Because of God's tender mercy, the morning light from heaven is about to break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death and to guide us to the path of peace. The ESV says it slightly differently. It says, to guide our feet into the way of peace. I love that, that imagery. To show us a way to forgiveness, a, a way to guide our feet to the way, the path of peace, the way of Jesus. But what does that look like? It sounds so quaint and so charming and sweet at Christmas, spoken over this miraculous baby. We love to hear the prophecies that the Messiah would be born and he would be the Prince of Peace. But what does that look like lived out? What does that look like beyond the manger, beyond the Christmas story? What did it look like lived out in the rest of Jesus's ministry on earth? Today we're continuing in the series we started last week, Prince of Peace, asking that question, asking the question, how does that prophetic name, Prince of Peace, get lived out in Jesus' earthly ministry, in his teachings, and how can we experience it today? I want to invite you to turn with me uh, to the book of Luke, chapter 7, uh, and we are going to spend our time, the majority of our time, in Luke 7 today. And just for context, this is now, you know, six chapters later, but it's 30 years later, Jesus is now in full-blown ministry. He's teaching, he's preaching, he's healing, he's traveling the countryside and doing all of these things. He's gained quite a bit of notoriety among the common folk and, and some very powerful dissenters as well among the powerful religious folk. He's preaching a very different message than they are preaching. It's unsettling. So let's read. Chapter 7, uh, starting in verse, this is the wrong page, right here, in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his house and sat down to eat. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. It was very common in that time and in that place for powerful religious leaders to invite some new you know, celebrity roving preacher to come to their home. It was a way for them to sort of ride on the coattails of their fame. They could kind of ride on the coattails of this new and famous leader. It was also very customary during this time and in that place that the doors of the feast, the doors of the home would be left open so that the common people could come in and sit and observe these different things. They could see how the Pharisee was elevating themselves, but how could they elevate their status if no one knew they'd come, if no one saw the event? They couldn't post it on Instagram. They couldn't tweet about this famous person that was at their house. So guests were allowed to come in. Common folks were allowed to come in. One commentator said this, at special meals, the door was left open so uninvited guests could enter, sit by the walls, and hear the conversation. But this was not a typical meal. As we'll see as we go through this, Jesus has no notoriety, but he's also become somewhat notorious. <laughs> and this meal is not so much about honoring Jesus as it is about maybe laying a trap for Jesus as the evening progresses. Let's keep reading. When a certain immoral woman from that city heard he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume 
on them. There's a whole lot going on in that chapter. First of all, it says a certain immoral woman from that city. But, but what does that even mean, a certain immoral woman? If you look up the, the Greek word for this, it's hermotolos, right? <laughs> Which basically translates to a sinner, <laughs> Which isn't really helpful. It doesn't really narrow it down, right? We're all sinners. So what does it mean that this woman is a, is a sinner, a certain immoral woman? How did she earn that moniker? The truth is we don't know. The text doesn't tell us. And so this is one of those times where we have to decide to go outside of the text and ask, what would that phrase have meant to the original readers of this text? That a certain immoral woman from that town, according to a couple of commentaries I read, that phrase, a sinner, when applied to a woman could have meant one of three things. First, it could be applied to any person who broke the moral laws of the written scriptures. Quite often, the word sinners was a euphemism for prostitutes. In fact, prostitution was the only kind of occupation she could have had that would have given her that social stigma. So that's one possibility. A second possibility is the term was applied to women who had their hair uncovered in public. So we've narrowed it down. She's either a prostitute or wasn't wearing a hat that day, <laughs> right? And then there's a third, more broad definition. The Pharisees defined a sinner as anyone who did not conform to any one of their legalistic rituals, which were called the oral laws. Remember that. Which included numerous prayers and washing throughout the day. For example, an ultra-strict Pharisee even considered anyone who touched a Roman or Greek coin as filthy because he violated the command against graven images. These coins had graven images of the emperor and or pagan deity on them. These broad, expansive laws, these oral rules, these oral traditions that no one could possibly live up to. And any of them could earn you the title sinner. So what about this certain woman? Well, historically, most Bible scholars have accepted that first explanation that she was a prostitute, that that was about the only thing she could do that would earn her that sort of name. But we don't know for sure. In context, however, in this passage, it's obvious that she knew what she was, that Simon knew what she was, that everyone in the room knew that she was. She was a certain immoral woman from that city. The whole town knew what she was. She, like Elizabeth at the beginning of the story, was bearing this heavy public disgrace, this shame. But unlike Elizabeth, apparently she had done something to earn that disgrace. Last week, Dan referenced Tim Keller's definition of shalom peace, and I absolutely loved it. He said this, Shalom experienced is multidimensional, complete well-being physical, psychological, social, and spiritual. It flows from all of one's relationships being put right with God, with or within oneself, and with others. Shalom, peace, is, is fundamentally relational. And here in the story, we see a woman that's experienced complete breakdown of the psychological and social and even spiritual well-being. Her life is chaos. There is no peace. There is no shalom in her life. And yet here she is at the feet of Jesus. And I think we can learn from that. There's a place to write this in your notes. We can bring our chaos to Jesus. She does. She's broken and she knows it. And she brings all of that social and psychological shame and chaos before Jesus. 
What chaos in your life have you been hiding? What shame, what disgrace are you bearing that you just can't imagine bringing to light? I think in this story, we see that Jesus invites us to bring all of us, even our greatest shames, to his feet. But continuing the story, uh, as shocking as it is that, that she's present at this, what she then goes to do next is even more shocking. It's scandalous. Outside folks are welcome to come into the feast, but they were supposed to serve a certain role, right? What was the role? Observer. <laughs> they were supposed to bear witness that this famous person had been in the house. They weren't supposed to participate. They're supposed to watch from the wings, but she approaches the table. She approaches a guest. She approaches the guest of honor at this feast. And not only she approaches him, but she begins anointing his feet with this extravagant oil. Apparently, again, from historical records, this alabaster jar, this, this perfume that she had, would have been incredibly valuable. Possibly valuable enough to be like worth a, a full year's salary. Valuable enough that these jars were handed down from generation to generation. It was an inheritance. It had that kind of value to her. It was her legacy. And here she was anointing Jesus' feet with it. It was absolutely scandalous for a woman to expose her hair in public. Did you know that tradition actually dictated that a bridegroom would have never seen his betrothed, betrothed hair until the night of their wedding? And here she is in public, letting her hair down and cleaning Jesus' filthy feet with her own tears. It's scandalous. There's a place to write this down, because I think we can learn from her in this as well. She approached Jesus humbly, recklessly, and extravagantly. She knew what everyone in that room thought of her. She wasn't concerned with them. She was concerned about what the Savior thought of her, what Jesus thought of her. She risked public humiliation and expulsion from the party, and she went recklessly before Christ. And she brought her most valuable, her most cherished possession, the product of so many nights of work, her heritage to pass on to her children, and she offers it to Christ. Next verse. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner, right? It's interesting. I mean, here's this Pharisee. His whole life is about maintaining purity, about doing nothing that would even appear to give him any sort of impurity in his life. And yet he's not concerned that there's a prostitute in his house. It's not a present that he reacts to. It's Jesus' reaction to her that Simon reacts to. Next verse. Then Jesus answered his thoughts. Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. I love that phrase. Then Jesus answered his thoughts. <laughs> like, then Jesus read his mind. Like, you don't think I'm a prophet? How about I tell you what you're thinking right now and everything you've ever thought? Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. Then Jesus told him this story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one, and 50 pieces to the other. And pause. This, we're still talking about huge amounts of money. 500 pieces of silver is also equivalent to probably like a year's salary. It's a lot of money. And to the other, a pittance by comparison. But neither of them could repay him, so he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, I suppose the one he canceled a larger debt. That's right. Jesus said, again, in the ESV it says, and he said to him, you have judged rightly. 
For, for a Pharisee, there was no higher compliment that could be given than you have judged rightly. Their whole existence was based on reading scripture and judging what was right and what was wrong. More importantly, who was right and who was wrong. That's what they lived to do. So for them to hear you've judged rightly from this, this new famous teacher was a high praise. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? Let me read that again. Then turning toward the woman, Jesus said to Simon, do you see this woman, I think in part, Jesus is calling Simon out. I think in part, Jesus is saying, do you even see this woman or do you just see a prostitute? Do you just see a sinner, a less than, a common folk? Jesus then goes on with his rebuke of Simon. I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil. She's anointed my feet with ointment. This is important. And it's hard for us to understand because we don't have anything in our traditions in modern day America like this when we enter, when guests enter our home. We don't have these sorts of honoring traditions. And it may even sound to us in light of that, like Jesus is sort of like raising the expectations, like kind of being a diva, like you didn't even anoint my head with oil. (laughs) He's not. What Jesus is referencing is just basic hospitality. In Middle Eastern culture, it was more than just customary. It was mandatory for a host to provide some basic welcoming elements, some signs of hospitality and honor for the guests. Many of you probably know that the streets of the cities were dirt roads that were used not only by people but by livestock who left their mark everywhere they went. You can imagine the smell. You can imagine the filth. And people were open sandals. So when guests entered the home, they were welcomed by servants who would provide them with water and who would wash their feet. Guests, when they entered the home, were greeted by the host with a kiss. The host would then anoint their head with oil as a way of of honoring them and welcoming them. It was very, very significant. These things were, were just basic hospitality. But more importantly than that, they were actually required by the Pharisees as part of that same oral law that we talked about earlier. One commentary said this, the oral law so strongly condemned these acts of hospitality violations that it said if one committed any one of these acts, he should be condemned to hell. That's how important these traditions are. And Jesus is saying, you didn't do any of them. You're sitting in judgment over this woman while you yourself have committed these acts that are so egregious. He didn't see a woman worshiping. He saw a sinner Jesus goes on, therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she's loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Jesus is looking at this woman, and he's not saying, be of good cheer. (laughs) He's saying, I know you, they know you, I see you. You are seen, you are known, and you are loved. You are forgiven. He says, your sins are forgiven. Peace comes with the forgiveness of sin, the removal of shame, the restoration of relationship. Next verse. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sin? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Christ says in the midst of this chaos and rejection, I offer Forgiveness. 
an invitation to go from this place in peace. And presumably she does. We don't know. That's the end of her story in Scripture. We don't know what happened to her next. Did she find new employment? Possibly. We don't know. Was her reputation restored and her status in society elevated? Possibly. Probably not. We, we don't know. All we know is that in the midst of her social, emotional, psychological chaos, her total lack of shalom... Christ offered her peace. He invited her to go in peace. Her encounter with Christ gave her the opportunity to go forward, no matter the trials or the challenges that she was sure to face, in peace. Knowing that she was loved and forgiven. But we don't know what she did with that offer. And I think there's a lesson for us in that, too. There's a place to write this down. Peace is offered, but peace is optional. Christ offered her peace and offers us peace in the midst of our chaos, even in the midst of our own total relational breakdowns and spiritual failures, but it's opt-in. Will you receive that peace that Jesus offers? Will you bring all of yourself, your shame, your disgrace, humbly, recklessly, and even extravagantly before Christ? Because if you do, God can take your story of chaos and brokenness and do it into something beautiful. I don't know what you've come to this place tonight or, or for those at home. I don't know what you've come carrying, what chaos, what hurt, what broken relationships, what shame you have, but I'm guessing you know. I'm guessing there are others in your life who know. Maybe you can identify with the woman. You feel the shame of the choices that you've made. You have an invitation to bring that before God right now and confess it. Give it to God, an invitation not only to confess, but to change, change direction. Walk away from the behaviors that have been so destructive, that have brought so much pain, that rob you of your peace, as Dan talked about last week. What relationships maybe do you need to end in your life? What habit is holding you captive and stealing your peace? What broken relationships do you need to mend? Christ's invitation is to bring it to him and then having repented, go in peace from this moment. Or maybe, maybe in the story, you identify more with the person of Simon. Maybe you're not even aware that you don't see people, you see sinners. Self-righteousness, by the way, is a misnomer. Self-righteousness is not a form of righteousness. It's a form of sin. <laughs> Simply put, the invitation is there for you too. Repent. Ask the Holy Spirit to give you eyes to see people the way Christ saw this woman. And then go in peace. The invitation's there. There's a place to write this down. True peace comes from true repentance. Will you accept that invitation? Will you make Jesus your Lord and confess, or your Savior and confess the sin that binds you, but also make him your Lord? Allowing Christ's way, the way of peace, to be your way moving forward. There's one, one more blank to fill in. Jesus knows what it's like to bear public dis disgrace. It's actually all over the Jesus story. The Christmas story is at its core a story of public shame that God turned into something beautiful, the most beautiful thing, the salvation of the world. A story where the God of creation took on flesh, entered into our brokenness, felt the pain of rejection, the disgrace of whispered accusations and suspicious stares. He knew the hurt of betrayal and contempt. 
There's a lyric in one of the songs that we sing occasionally during communion services, Come As You Are. It's one of my favorite lyrics. It says, Earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal. I love that. I, I would present to you, friends, that earth has no sorrow that Christ can't understand, that Christ didn't experience. There is no sorrow, no guilt, no shame, no, no weight that we carry that Christ cannot understand. The Christmas story is the story of a teenage unwed mother who suddenly inexplicably is pregnant. I say inexplicably, but I have to think that there would be plenty of theories going around at the time. Plenty of explicables. <laughs> you have to think that everyone was looking at Joseph. That everyone in town had a version of the story. They knew the truth of the situation. I can't imagine Mary or Joseph came off well in any of those stories. I can't imagine anybody was buying the whole, and then the Holy Spirit miraculously, like nobody bought that story. I'm guessing everyone knew this scandal, this public disgrace. When I was a kid, there was a term that we had for kids that were born out of wedlock. It's a term that now sounds so harsh, so hateful, so inappropriate in this modern day and age. We called those kids illegitimate children. I mean, think about that. This wasn't the first century. This wasn't the 1200s. This was the 1980s. And we called these children who had done absolutely nothing wrong illegitimate people. I think it tells us a whole lot about the heart of God, that he chose to reveal himself to the world, to incarnate, to take on flesh in a way that everyone at the time would have perceived as being an illegitimate child. Joseph knew what it was like to bear public shame. Mary knew. Mary's family knew. Joseph's family knew. And I think Jesus knew. And that is how light chose to enter the darkness. And the gospel accounts, the gospel story of Jesus' ministry ends in public stress, public shame. There is no more shameful way to die than on a Roman cross. That was an execution reserved for, for criminals and thieves and enemies of the state, traitors to the crown. And I think it says a lot about the heart of God, that he chose that path to restore all of humanity to himself. He chose that path to be the path where sin's power was broken he chose that path as an invitation extended that we could be reconciled to God and to one another. On that cross, God chose to demonstrate his love to us through the person of Jesus Christ. God chose to demonstrate that he loved us humbly, recklessly, and extravagantly. God's invitation is to know that love, to experience that love, to be changed by that sort of radical love but it's opt-in. Will you accept? Each month, we celebrate Holy Communion. It's an opportunity for us to be reminded of that love, but it's also an opportunity for us to once again say yes to God, to once again have our feet guided onto the path of peace, to once again realign our hearts and our minds and our priorities to the way of Jesus. Maybe for the first time, or maybe for the one millionth time, to repent again and realign ourselves with God. If you're new to our church, we don't, uh, we, when we communicate, when we commemorate communion, we commemorate this very real event. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There's so much the Bible doesn't say about community. It doesn't prescribe a specific age. It doesn't prescribe a specific method. It doesn't prescribe a specific kind of bread or wine. But here's something that the Bible does say in 1 Corinthians 11. Let a person examine himself and herself. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And Emmanuel, the only one that will keep you from the Lord's table is if you, if you could sincerely pray the prayers that we're about to pray, then we welcome you to the Lord's table. For those of you who are at home, I, I would take this moment to maybe pause and go gather the elements that we could partake together even virtually in this time. For you, there won't be any ushers telling you when it's time to come forward. Uh, make these prayers. We're about to pray your own and come forward as the Holy Spirit leads. Let's prepare ourselves for this moment now. Please join me. Heavenly Father, to whom all hearts and minds are open and all desires are known, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit that we may more perfectly love you and more worthily magnify your holy name. We confess that we are sinners and cannot save ourselves. We've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us, renew us, and lead us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. We are not worthy for these gifts which we are about to receive. But say the word, and it will be made clean. Holy Spirit, I invite you in this moment, in this room right now, and in the countless rooms where people are experiencing this at home, I invite you to move. Our desire is to understand you more, to see your heart more, to know that you are a God who pursues us, who wants to bring shalom, who wants us to flourish. And we acknowledge that we so often turn away from that heart Holy Spirit, move. Give us a glimpse. Give us a vision of your love. And then give us the courage and even the power to repent, whether it's for the first time or the one millionth time, and realign our hearts to you. We pray using the words you taught your disciples. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.